All right, cool. I think we can go ahead and get started. Um, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Courtney Freer. I'm Assistant Professorial Research Fellow uh, with the Kuwait Program at LSE's Middle East Center. So it's great to be here to have um, this fantastic lineup um, to talk about Kuwait's elections. Um, and I think it's really particularly refreshing to talk about elections that matter in the Gulf. I think a lot of the news we've seen coming out of the Gulf over the past few years has had to do with kind of the tightening of political space. So it's really nice um, to have this conversation, especially about elections that do yield some pretty fascinating results. In this case, a lot of turnover in terms of incumbents being voted out, a good bit of opposite, opposition representation, um, that we may have a conversation about what that means in this context, as well as some gains for tribal and Islamist uh, MPs. Um, I also think the event is pretty well-timed given uh, that the Emir, while we in the US were, were sleeping, um, ended up appointing his new prime minister, who was actually, I guess, the, the previous prime minister, uh, Sheikh Sabah al-Khalid. Um, so we have quite a bit to cover today and some of the best place people, I think, to discuss all of these issues. So what we're gonna do is each of the four speakers is going to present for about five to seven minutes, um, and then we'll move on to Q&A. And if you do want to ask a question, um, go ahead and type the question into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen, and then we can go ahead and address the questions uh, to the speakers. Um, the event is being recorded, um, so you can listen to it as many times as you want. It's also being live streamed on Facebook, and if you would like to tweet about the event, you can use the hashtag LSE Kuwait or LSE Middle East. Um, so I'll go ahead and introduce our speakers, although I imagine that, that many of you know them already. Um, Michael Herb is professor and chair of, political of the political science department at Georgia State University. He's the author of The Wages of Oil, Parliaments and Economic Development in Kuwait and the UAE, which was published in 2014 by Cornell University Press. Um, and All in the Family, Absolut Absolutism, Revolution and Democracy in the Middle Eastern Monarchies, which came out in 1999. Um, he maintains the Kuwait Politics Data Database, which is an invaluable resource for all of us who work on Kuwaiti elections. Abdullah Al-Khoneini is co-founder of Rocket 50, it's an online uh, parliament watch that holds Kuwaiti parliamentarians accountable by making their voting records accessible to the public, which is another fantastic resource. Um, he completed his MA in Power Participation and Social Change from the Institute of Development Studies at Sussex University. Daniel Tavana is a postdoctoral fellow at the Council on Middle East Studies at the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. His research interests include a focus on elections, identity, and comparative political behavior, as well as the dynamics of political opposition in authoritarian regimes. He completed his BA at the University of Pennsylvania, an MPhil in international relations at the University of Cambridge, and an MPP at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And I should mention also that Abdullah and Dan had a piece come out just this morning in the Washington Post analyzing the uh, Kuwait elections results. So I would definitely encourage you to check that out. Um, and last but certainly not least, we have Alanud Al-Sharak, who's uh, the director of Iftikhar Strategic Consultancy, which is, uh, leads to political uh, leadership and diversity training programs in Kuwait and across the GCC. She's the chairperson of the Abolish 153 campaign to end honor killing legislations and a co-founder of Madawi's List, a platform to support women running for political office. She's also an associate fellow at the Chatham House uh, MENA program and research fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. So thanks so much for joining us. Um, and I'll go ahead and let uh, Mike start us off. Thanks for the introduction. Um, I will uh, start by just uh, making a, a, a few comments on, uh, and I'll start by putting, you know, providing a little bit of perspective. And, you know, with a, with a lot of things in politics, you can look at them with a half glass full or a half glass empty. And there's a, a, a lot going on in, that would suggest a half 
glass empty, a uh, glass half empty. Uh, women did, there's no women in this, this, this parliament. Um, Kuwait faces lots and lots of challenges going forward, uh, including especially economic challenges, which the parliament isn't all that well suited to address. Um, and there's lots of uh, problems in the region and, and so forth. But there's also another way of looking at this, which is that this was a, a pretty normal election in a context uh, and in a larger world in which uh, uh, elections are under some siege, uh, in which uh, uh, freedom is threatened uh, you know, from Hong Kong to sectarianism in India, uh, to the uh, sort of changes in the nature of the regime in, in Saudi Arabia, uh, Brexit coming up, all sorts of things. Uh, and, and in this context, Kuwait held a, a Pretty normal election. Um, it, uh, uh, you know, the 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 uh, uh, balloting was was uh, reasonably free and fair. Uh, people turned out in large numbers, and one of the notable notable things about this election was that turnout was was high. People turned out in good numbers uh, and uh, let let their their uh, their opinions be known. Uh, and I think that there's, you know, this is something like the 12th election since uh, liberation. Uh, and that's a, that's a, a pretty good record. Uh, so what, what did happen in the election? Well, there was a lot of turnover. Um, something 62%, well, there were, there were 24 deputies who, uh, in, the, in the previous uh, uh, majlis who ran and who lost. Uh, that's nearly half. There was another seven who did not run, and some of them lost uh, tribal primaries, so they would have run, except for that they, they lost the primary. Uh, and so that's a, it's a pretty good turnover. One read of it is, is that the Kuwaiti electorate wanted to, uh, uh, you know, to, to a new set of faces. Um, it, it, it should be kept in mind, however, that, that the incumbency advantage in Kuwaiti elections is not high at all. So this was not actually... I mean, it, it was on the high end for the turnover, but it wasn't that high. Uh, the the uh, about sixty percent of the seats turned over in the last election. Um, although, again, historically, that is it, it, it's a little bit higher than than uh, than often. But again, it, it, turnover a lot of turnover is to be expected. I'm not sure there's a crystal clear conclusion that we can draw from the uh, results. There was a lot of different types of change. Um, the uh, 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 organized political groups, again, are not very well represented in the uh, parliament. Um, uh, Hadas, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood kept or has three seats, which I think is kept there. Well, they, not the exact same seats, but they're still represented. The Salafis did poorly. Uh, and then other organized uh, ideological groups are pretty much absent. Uh, Kuwaitis vote largely on identity lines, uh, tribe and sect and so forth, as do people uh, around the world. Uh, so Kuwait is not unusual in this. Um, the uh, number of seats that are, are tribal in which someone ran with a, with a declared sort of tribal uh, 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 backing uh, rose to 28, which is a couple, a few more than in the last uh, 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 Majlis and, and historically is sort of at, a, at the high end uh, of, uh, of Kuwaiti elections. Shia kept their seats. Um, 
not not again exactly the same seats, but there were six Shia in the previous parliament. There's six uh, in this one. Um, the uh, uh, there's some reads of this that the opposition did well. Um, I will we'll see how that, or at least a little bit better, perhaps. Again, the opposition, and I think Daniel, you'll talk about this more. The opposition is a more amorphous uh, uh, concept, and it, it, it isn't a, a, a sort of a defined political group. Um, there were some notable uh, wins. Hassan Johar won in the first with a. Uh, with uh, probably some support, well, with some support from Sunni voters, uh, which was, uh, you know, and, and he'll be uh, a uh, uh, certainly an independent uh, and uh, opposition voice in the parliament. Uh, some of, but the, it's a mixed story here, right? Because some of the other stories are that uh, the uh, one one story that came out of this is is that the tribal primaries weren't as successful as in previous uh, elections, and and there's some to that. There were uh, the two leading Awazim and the fifth were not uh, did not enter tribal primaries. But on the other hand, there were a number of people who won their tribal primaries and then won the election, or at least won the most votes amongst their tribes. So I'm not convinced that tribal primaries are uh, uh, on their way out. Actually, they're not on their way out. Uh, the, uh, the, the primaries don't appear to have been, these the reports in the newspapers, the primaries went off uh, fairly early and uh, or seemed to have been accepted as a normal part of the process. Um, the uh, government, uh, you know, one of the, 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 uh, the ways that the government interfered a bit in the election to some degree was in removing candidates from the election rolls, although in the end, Badr Dahum in the in the fifth uh, was allowed back onto the uh, to compete in the election more or less at the last moment as a result of a court decision, and came in second. Uh, and so, uh, you know, in, in a number of uh, in in the fourth, some some candidates or some uh, uh, members of parliament who had uh, been in parliament for a long time and had sort of a reputation as service deputies. Uh, uh, did not win again, so we will see what what uh, what happens uh, going forward, and see if this uh, uh, parliament has, you know, stands up more uh, to the government than than the previous one, or is more united, or sort of, and also I think whether or not it, it it adopts a more united sort of tack on on issues of corruption, which came up a lot, uh, and political freedom. So that's uh, seven minutes. There is of course a lot more to say, but. We'll turn it over to uh, whoever goes next. So, thanks so much. I'll turn it over to um, Abdullah. Uh, thank you, Courtney, and thank you, Mike, for uh, the, the summary of the election, and thanks for the introduction. Uh, I'm gonna go and talk more about the youth participation in this election or youth engagement in this election. And uh, since, uh, since we had this election under the pandemic, uh, election camps and tents were not allowed and duaneas were like closed officially. But uh, despite this sort of like healthy measures, duaneas, some duaneas held their like sort of like gatherings uh, and they've been, they've been having their sort of like uh, meetups with their candidates during the elections. But then the online sphere had 
uh, had lots of engagements when it comes to this election. So Twitter and Instagram, you, we have been seeing the, also Zoom meetings, like some candidates having sort of like meeting with their the uh, bases uh, uh, on Zoom. Uh, and with, with this comes the youth uh, engagement this year more than the previous sort of like 2016 elections. So uh, there've been many youth uh, initiatives that started within sort of like the past six months. And some of them have been there for a while, but this election, they've been like sort of like having a spin-off during the election where they have engagements with candidates and with people. So uh, stuff like Nikashna, um, uh, uh, which is a, a debate platform. They used to host uh, physical debates. Now during the elections, they had sort of like uh, live on Instagram called Sot uh, Shabab, where they and they would hear uh, questions from the, the the audience, and they would ask them uh, directly toward the end. This is something unheard of when when we look back at 2016, when there are like uh, election camps and tents and duanias and sort of like well-established channels where you meet your candidates and discuss things with them. Warak, uh, it's a an established podcast. They had sort of like bidun maqar which is without an election camp or without a tent. And they've been debating people, not just candidates, they've been debating um, uh, people the, the, about the elections, people who, bycott, who are boycotting the elections and people who are ex-ministers or ex-members and debating things related to the elections. Um, we've seen um, things um, uh, supporting female candidates like Madawi's list and uh, Anud, she's going to delve more into this in her uh, talk. The Gray Area is a group where they were supporting um, the, the passage of citizenship to Kuwaitis uh, women, to their kids who are married to non-Kuwaitis. During the election, they started uh, this sort of like, I'm going to record you and I'm going to have you uh, uh, tell me, like, uh, record the candidate. Tell me if you, if you win your seat, what would you do? Uh, will, you, will, you, will you pass this bill to grant the citizenship to Kuwaiti women who are marrying to non-Kuwaitis? And they've been posting these things so on social media. Hiwar is one of the, the most sort of like circulated, especially in the past two days now. They've been holding uh, uh, with Al Jarida and established a newspaper. They had this sort of like debate, recorded debate between candidates. And since now we're having the, the sort of like the heated debate or who is going to be the next speaker, some segments from their talks during the, the, the election campaign has been sort of like circulated on social media. Uh, things related to like you said this about the, the, the leadership or the speaker uh, of the parliament. Now they're sort, sort of like holding them accountable on, cert on certain issues, such as, for example, debating uh, the stateless, uh, the Bedouin in Kuwait. They've been, um, uh, and all of this sort of, and Hiwar, for example, the debaters themselves, they were, they, they were youth. They were like around the age of 20 and 26 debating candidates and discussing issues. So uh, the, uh, it's, been, it's been, for me, looking at the youth sort of like engagement, it's been a pleasant sort of like, um, I, I, these were my source of information rather than the sort of traditional paid uh, interviews on TV. Um, and since I run also the Parliament Watch Ratab 50, I've been looking at how people um, look up Raqib and search for it. For, for example, if there is a, a primary that's happening this week, 
you would see some names from that primary. Uh, uh, it has the most views on Raqib. You would see that the people who were, who were, who were part of that primary election, so the, so the participants of that primary or anyone who could look, uh, who was following the primaries news, were like looking some of the data on Raqib 50, uh, seeing sort of like the, uh, the candidates who were running in that parliament and they were part of that, the former parliament. So they were, they were looking at uh, Raqib's data. And I've been looking at the statistics. So for example, if there is a heated interview that I've been out this week, you would see, for example, that candidate, if he was part of the, of the parliament of the previous or the ones before it, part of that, uh, you would see him sort of like ranking in the views and Raqib, um, the, like from my end, when I watch like who was the most uh, uh, candidate has been uh, uh, looking up through the, from people. And uh, Raqib websites crashed twice during the elections, especially in the past two days before the elections because of the amount of visitors who were like checking the data and they were looking at it. So I think, sort of like this engagement, the online engagement, and the youth enabling this communication channels where they were, where they were having podcasts, they were having Instagram lives, and they were having things uh, collaborated with uh, newspapers, and, um, and they've been, and they've been at the moment about, uh, sort of like highlighted this election, at least for me. Like I, I could, I could, I could write a lot about what happened with the with the youth. Things that went well and things that didn't go well, and sort of like adapted within the election, trying to reach out to like a bigger audience. Uh, and then when we look at the traditional sort of like civil society, um, the, the transparency society was one of the observers during this election, and uh, they've done, uh, they've observed the election and they just released their report. Uh, I think it was uh, nine pages, the ones I'm, the, the one I've, I went through, and it, they published sort of like what happened through the the election, and it was fair. There were there weren't any major red flags, except the usual of saying that it's time like to have an independent uh, body to basically um, the, uh, run the elections and overview the elections rather than the Ministry of Interior. Uh, the, so this is. How I've, I've seen this election is how the how the youth has been sort of like engaged online uh, with the with with the uh, with the candidates and with people who are sort of interested within the, the the elections. So I've rarely seen on the interviews or on traditional media people who are boycotting the election and coming up on an interview and discussing why they're boycotting this election while the youth sort of like on their platform had this. They had multiple sorts of like point of views and, and voices that you wouldn't generally hear about it on the traditional ones. Um, uh, and also when it comes to the results, uh, I think, the, and this is Danielle's forte, is basically who, who, who uh, the, the youth who won in this parliament are somehow similar to 2016. But what I'm interested in is I wish I could know, for example, uh, the age of voters and which, which is the largest group who voted in this election and um, in which areas and to sort of like link this to see the impact of the engagement on the youth themselves and see how they are basically navigating and the, the boxes. So uh, I can talk about more in details about this, but I don't want to take much of the time. And I'm going to keep it consistent with seven minutes. And I think I reached that seven minutes. So, but if you have any more questions, I'm here.
Thank you so much. Um, now I'll pass it on to Dan. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Courtney, and, and thanks uh, to all of you for, for being here and to Ian and the Kuwait program and, and KFAS as well. Um, I, I want to echo that it's it's great to see so many people here for an elections focused event. Uh, these are, are rare, but but exciting. So um, I'm very happy to, to see that there's so much interest. Um, without repeating too much of what uh, Michael said, I want to also sort of uh, echo and, and say that my kind of takeaway from, from the results and, and what happened on, over this weekend is that nothing really has fundamentally changed and that the political landscape is going to, in my view, stay the same in a lot of ways. Um, and I'll kind of explain why I think uh, that's probably going to happen and why that appears to be what the results sort of tell us, even though, of course, Things may change, um, and you know there could be something unexpected that happens early on. Um, though there are a lot of new faces, uh, like I said, there is a lot more continuity in certain practices of the election. Uh, in certain practices of the elections, there have been about four. Well, there have been four elections held under the one vote or SNTV system, as it's more commonly known. And though this system may be reformed or amended, it has institutionalized a set of relationships, norms, and practices that worked in many ways exactly the way that they were supposed to in this election. Ironically, it's these practices that are going to and will continue to inhibit the elected MPs from tackling the issues that were so important to voters during this election, the future of the welfare state, corruption, mismanagement of public funds, and other issues to, to some extent too, like amnesty for members of the opposition, some of whom are, are, in, are in exile, electoral form, the Badoon law, and social issues like the right of Kuwaiti women to pass citizenship on to their children. And so I want to emphasize that um, this election worked the way it was supposed to on, on sort of three dimensions. And, and the first is that as others have written and sort of talked about the electoral system and even these past elections have heightened increase have heightened identity politics in Kuwait. And so how does this happen? As, as, as Michael sort of mentioned, this is not unique to Kuwait. Um, scholars have written about this in, in the US too, um, but in order to win, a candidate needs about two and a half to 3% of the registered voters in their district in order to get a seat. That's true of all districts. Of course, different numbers of people run and the numbers change, but basically if you're looking at the elections from the point of view of a candidate, that's what you need to win. And so what does that mean in practice? It means that social networks, family, kin networks, tribes, sectarian networks, and so on are much more important, not just because those are the people that the candidates are around most of the time socially, but because it's much harder to convince someone outside of your group, and the further you go, the harder it is to vote for you. Not surprisingly, in this context, vote buying is a problem, and we saw that in this past election as we have in previous elections. And we saw again, and, and, and Michael spoke about this, uh, tribes fielded 22 candidates in the election, 15 won, and eight of them are, are, are newcomers. So of the 21 completely new candidates, almost half, eight of them are people who came from the tribal primary system, however you feel about that. And so, you know, again, on this front, from the perspective of, you know, is every group represented there hasn't been much change. 
during election day when Sabah Khalid was driving away from, from the polls, a reporter asked, uh, you know, how do you feel about the elections? And Sabah Khalid said, everyone's a winner, right? That's by design. That's what the system is, is supposed to do. Of course, we know that there were actually uh, quite a few losers in this election, um, women being the most important and most visible. Um, and that's, again, for reasons I'll get into, kind of um, a symptom of the way the electoral system is, is designed. SNTV or one vote systems are not necessarily bad systems. Many countries, not a lot, use them. Um, but what they do in context where there's so many seats in a district, 10 in Kuwait, is it limits the kind of coalitional bargaining programmatic type appeals that make kind of elections and candidates interesting to voters. It makes it, you know, clear what the choice is between. And so over the past four elections, you've seen a move away from that in Kuwait. And this election wasn't much of a difference. You know, overall, in, in when you have a system like this and, and in Kuwait, you have about, you know, 50% of votes that are effectively wasted or go to candidates that don't win. That's a huge problem. And in a normal system where there are parties and other interests represented, you as a voter casting a vote for someone who loses, you still have some parliamentary representation in the form of a party or a group or a faction that can credibly kind of defend your interests or, or sort of fight for you. But in this system, you really don't. Another consequence, like I said, is that the system actively discriminates against women and the success of women in this context given how much of these networks and spaces are male dominated and rely on the kind of patriarchal structures that make things like vote buying or the exchange of favors, ma'amalat in the Kuwait context, more popular and attractive to voters. And so overall in this kind of context, in order to win, candidates have to promise to do the very things for their voters that they're actively and publicly campaigning against. And I think, you know, on that front, things were not that much different this time. I have about a minute left. And so I, what I want to sort of uh, throw out there, there's been a lot of debate on social media about whether or not the opposition has done better or worse. My sense is that a lot of, you know, we, we really don't know yet. Um, ideological parties tended to do about as well as they have in the past, about 20% Islamists, about 10% who identify loosely as liberals, give or take. That's not, a big, that's not much of a change from past elections. But I think when we think about whether or not opposition is sort of real or back, we have to, I guess, first define what we mean by, by opposition and not to abstract too much away from the elections and jump into something that's sort of more academic. But to me, and, and I do this in some of my own research, I define opposition as um, a group of, of MPs or maybe even one MP who engages in routine public and goal-oriented activities in the legislature that are designed to weaken the sort of government's policy agenda and limit the government's control over the institution itself. And so far, it's not necessarily clear to me that um, a lot of MPs are, are going to be interested in this. And I'll close by saying right after the election, um, the sort of most famous opposition leader in Kuwait, Ahmed Khatib, congratulated the Kuwaiti people and encourage the government to listen to what was a high rate of change in the in the election. Um, and then 24 hours later, he tweeted that 
you know, he kind of warned the new MPs to not get sucked into kind of traps that are laid by the government in terms of deba debating personnel and not real reform. And I thought this was really interesting. Um, you know, one, Badr Tahum, uh, who, who Michael mentioned, has already said that, you know, he wants to block one of the returning uh, ministers. Um, so it's not clear to me that a kind of opposition that wants to engage in sort of, um, you know, kind of real meaningful coalition against the government, or at least one that advocates a set of policies is going to emerge, particularly when their first sort of move is to challenge leadership and to impose demands on the government in terms of ministers. So I guess on that front, we'll have to see. Um, so I'll stop, I'll stop there and looking forward to your questions. Great, thank you. Um, and I'll turn to Alanud. Thanks, Courtney. And uh, thank you to all the speakers that came before me. There's a, there's a lot of questions that I have and uh, I wanna ask you about, uh, especially this idea of 50% of the votes being wasted. I think that's, a, that's something we need to really think about uh, more deeply. <clears throat> um, uh, I'll make some general remarks and then I'm gonna handle the, the women's issues. Um, uh, I'm uh, starting on a positive note. Uh, I'm really happy and impressed about the voter participation despite COVID and despite the lack of clear instructions from the government about safety measures, et cetera, right up till I think the, the last two days before election. Uh, I'm also happy about the, the youth engagement and that the number of younger candidates um, making it to, uh, to office, which for me, I mean, we won't know this until we open the ballot boxes and look at the demographics more closely, but to me suggests that younger people were, were voting for them and pushing for them. And uh, I was also very gratified uh, about the, the amount of support that we received in Malawi's list for the female candidates running and to see that the women's vote in this election was a decisive one and an important one. Uh, but uh, the results of those votes are not surprising. As <clears throat> my fellow uh, colleagues have said, Kuwait's vote on tribal, sectarian, uh, religious, uh, or kind of kinship lines. Uh, and uh, I'm frustrated by this uh, concept that we see in the papers that why aren't women voting for women? It's unfair to expect women to vote uh, as if they're not products of the existing political culture. They vote along the same lines as men. Uh, and uh, there's this deeply entrenched resistance to women's uh, leadership in Kuwait. This has been shown by the Arab barometer results. You know, there's a huge decline in the belief in women's leadership, uh, I think over the past five or six years in Kuwait. Uh, so we really need governmental intervention to balance results in a state that that a state of affairs that's deeply imbalanced and and regressive and you know sometimes i feel like i'm in a time warp because some of the same statements that we are hearing now to justify why women are being elected uh i think we're going to be teaching our children about them the same way we're teaching them about things that i heard 15 years ago when we were lobbying to get our political rights you know that uh, uh including women in the political process will cause the moral decline of kuwait it will cause uh, you know all, all kinds of uh, 
strange accusations. And today we're, we're hearing uh, kind of the same rhetoric to justify a really unjustifiable state of affairs that women aren't ready, they're not experienced, uh, their, uh, um, their performance was disappointing uh, or that uh, you know they, they, they didn't appeal to the right candidates uh, that, or the right uh, voters. You know, I, I just think that there is simply not the right sex. That is the main problem and the problem that we need to focus on. So um, uh, it's not surprising because even back then before we got our political rights, we had uh, movements uh, countering the women's movements, even among women themselves. So, so for me, none of this is surprising. I, I spoke about the need for quotas then when we first got our political rights, and I, I can see clearly that it's a problem. And I don't think it's, it's simply uh, a problem with the one man, one vote system, because we saw this happening in 2012. And at that time, there were no women in the government as well. So it, it, it remains to be seen how the government is going to try to, to fix this deficiency in, uh, in the gender balance uh, by, by appointing uh, females in the government. Uh, and it's also frustrating to me that we have many candidates right now who, uh, sorry, they're not candidates anymore, they're, they've been elected as MPs, who have openly spoken out against women's political and social rights. Um, so, you know, Mubawi's list uh, came out of this need to provide a safe space in what is clearly a hostile environment for women. Uh, we're interested in supporting women running for all elected positions, starting from student unions to co-ops, municipalities, sports clubs, uh, chamber of commerce, because these are the gateway positions that then catapult people into parliament for the most part. Because as we can see, uh, political movements associated with Islamists they don't have any room for, for women's leadership and tribal uh, seats, which are the majority, increasingly so, I imagine, as, as if the system continues the way it's going, uh, they don't even invite women into the primaries. So, you know, <laughs> they're not even asked their opinion on, on the, the male candidates, let alone being asked to run. And I imagine if, if there was a quota system, both of, of these groups would, would be very quick to, to have women representing them, just like they were very quick to embrace women as voters. So we're trying to use our platform to change the narrative around women in Kuwait, challenge the persistent and common misconceptions about uh, women's movements and the historical narratives around that, and also provide uh, hard facts about women's political leadership and participation. And we have our own um, media outputs that Abdullah mentioned. So we have Maqar Mubawi, which is Mubawi's campaign tent. And we have a day in the life of a, a female candidate where the candidates relay their uh, story with the vote through through capturing their their uh, their intimate life details and it's it's a very different rhetoric than how the traditional press handles women and and the issues they assume that women care about and we we make sure that we're not talking just about uh, issues that people 
people associate with, with women, uh, whether it's nationality rights for their children or ending violence, but also about uh, the, the bigger issues to do with the economic situation in Kuwait, to do with oil rents, to do with corruption, etc. because we are all part of the same fabric. Um, and more importantly, we connect female candidates who don't have the same network of support and funding with service providers. So we were very happy to have more than 40 service providers offering either voluntary or discounted rates for women. So I, I'd like to share just two slides with you about uh, what the Mudawi's List research team has, has just uh, uh, come up with to do with the current elections. So as we can see that the, the number of, of women voting is slightly more than, than male votes. And I think uh, that that holds for most of the districts, maybe maybe in the, in the fifth, it's, it's not. And uh, Courtney, if you can share the next slide. So out of all uh, the voters in Kuwait, this is the percentage that actually vote for women. So how, how can we have a conversation about this being a level field or that the, the people of Kuwait didn't choose women? People of Kuwait, first of all, didn't have that many women to choose from, especially since they're voting on lines that don't even acknowledge uh, women running for office. And also clearly there are structural, insidious and institutional issues when it comes to accepting women as viable political leaders. And the, the most persistent one seems to be that we have seen the performance of female candidates. And you can't use the same argument on, we have seen the performance of male candidates, therefore let's, let's stop voting for all men. So this burden of, of ambassadorship that people treat as if it's an actual fact is, is deeply problematic. And I, I don't see that the state is doing enough to counter this, whether with uh, quotas that, uh, you know, handle uh, gender representation or in the curriculums or in the sort of general messaging uh, that, that is being received. And if this is not dealt with, this will be increasingly problematic in the future. Great, thank you so much. All really, really informative uh, presentations, and we covered quite a lot of kind of different angles of, of these election results. Um, and I already see some questions coming in in the the Q and A box. Actually, some of them that that I was hoping to ask myself. Um, so I'll go ahead and, and start with this this first one because this is something that keeps coming up. It's kind of Kuwait's economic problems. Um, I mean, everyone's having economic problems given the, the COVID nineteen pandemic, lower oil prices. So this one question is: What is the panel's view? Um, of whether Kuwait's public debt law will be passed uh, either through parliament or by royal decree moving forward, because I guess the, the previous parliament had rejected that bill. Um, so I don't know who wants to take that question. I can go. Um, yeah, so I think if... Uh, if it was, so the, the, part, the former parliament rejected the bill, but then the government also had sort of like a window to, really, to, to, to reissue the, the debt law as a, an immediate decree during the past two months. But I, I don't think that um, it's gonna go through an immediate decree. I think it's gonna go through the parliament 
and uh, because they waited already a two months period and i think they've announced like they're gonna re i'm not sure about the announcement but they're gonna re-address it in the new parliament and with with this new parliament and sort of like it's yes it's the same as sort of like cleavage and like political parties and political representation and stuff like this similar to 2016 but there is a new sp there is enough space to sort of like navigate the government can navigate through the parliament with sort of like a new ways uh, starting with uh, the next speaker who we still don't know who is going to be and uh, two the 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 new faces that haven't been in the parliament and they've just joined the they've just got elected for the first time uh, that this opens sort of like a window for more sort of like um, less opposition I would say to the bill uh, but we'll have and wait and see because already that the the government announced like they've they've, they've reallocated sort of like They've, they've fixed some of the deficit within the budget just by sort of like relocating stuff and uh, renumbering some uh, uh, agendas. But uh, I don't think it's going to be through an Emirate decree on that. And I don't know if anyone else wants to add, there's also a related question on, on the same topic, basically about the debt law and then fiscal policy more broadly. I mean, how much this featured in debates and campaign platforms? I mean, I know from, from what I saw, there was a lot about you know, economic reform, but and corruption, but I don't know how much, like specifically on the debt law, or in terms of having specific policy recommendations. I don't know if, if anyone wants to take that. Um. Yeah. I mean, as usual, there were. I mean, there was. <coughs> excuse me. There was a great deal on on corruption. Uh, that was spoken about in the campaign, which is, you know, a, a common theme in, in Kuwait in the past and in the Gulf generally. Uh, and, you know, and again, there's this, this sort of populist Kuwaiti uh, uh, desire for the government to, to spend a lot of money in a context in which there are serious, serious uh, budget problems. And I expect that that will be a focus of what uh, the parliament tries to, to wrestle with is the... Uh, uh, you know, it, it is, uh, uh, yeah, there's, there's, COVID has caused some serious budget problems that are going to have to be wrestled with by parliament, which doesn't have a long history of successfully dealing with, with budget issues. Great. Um, is there anything else on that topic that anyone wanted to add? Or, um, I guess an, another question, this kind of goes to, I mean, everyone has mentioned, we still don't know who the Speaker of Parliament is going to be, and, and this will kind of be telling moving forward. So um, this question is kind of how, how significant was the meaning of 38 MPs who appeared to oppose the re-election of Marzouk Al-Ghanem um, as Speaker? So who do the panelists see as the most likely alternative candidates? And what will that Speaker vote tell us about how oppositional the new Parliament uh, will be? And I guess just to add, I mean, how likely do you think it, it is that, that someone not other than Marzouk Al-Ghanem will be um, elected moving forward. I'll, I'll, 38 is a lot. And the, the, all the reports I saw from that meeting suggested that there was uh, not a consensus over who the next speaker should be, but but some consensus over that it uh, shouldn't be uh, Marzouk Al-Ghanem. Uh, and so, uh, and I think that would, you know, I mean, it's, it's also a symbolic, I mean, it, it suggests that, uh, change in, in direction. 
you know, the, the speakers have typically been from, uh, uh, you know, the traditional leading Kuwaiti families. And it would be interesting to see if there's some move outside of, of that or not. I you know. But I don't know who it's going to be. Uh, Dan, do you have anything to add? I know you've been following this quite closely. Yeah, I, um, I mean, we'll see what happens. I, I'm skeptical. This happened, you know, the same thing happened four years ago um, where a bunch of MPs, you know, just after the election met and said they were going to support Abdullah Rumi. That ended up not happening. It's a secret vote in the parliament. And so, you know, in addition to needing, a, a, you know, a, a lot of elected MPs, the government votes on those uh, nominations. So, you know, 38 MPs is just enough to vote for someone who the government does not approve of. Um, and so, and, and I'm, I'm not saying that the government necessarily, you know, he's their favorite candidate, uh, uh, Marzouk is their favorite candidate, probably, but we don't, we don't really, we don't really know that. And so aside from, you know, the kind of structural reality of, of uh, the KNA, um, there isn't really much agreement, it seems to me. I mean, the candidates met and said that they did not want to support Marzouk again, but it's not clear who they, who they were all planning to support. Um, uh, Badr Humaydi, a former minister who won the election for the first time, has, has announced that he's running. But again, we don't know. So I think, um, you know, again, I'm, I'm skeptical that this will materialize into something. I think it will take more than a meeting uh, in, a, in, a, in a diwania to um, kind of credibly come up with an alternative. But, but who knows? I mean, there are a lot of new faces and we don't necessarily know how they'll vote. A lot of them were at this meeting. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, Courtney, I, I feel like uh, I agree with Daniel and that this has a feel a little bit of a deja vu. Like we've, we've seen this happen in 2016 as well. And there were very strong statements. And then, you know, the, the ballots showed overwhelming support for Marzouk uh, al-Ghanim. So Kuwait keeps you on your toes, but it usually performs in the way that's expected. I guess the one thing we know for sure is it won't be a woman uh, as speaker. So, you know, there's there's one one thing we're certain of. Um, but, uh, okay, so another question, I think related to a lot of what Abdullah spoke about and, and Al-Anud as well, is do you think this change in political engagement, especially kind of virtual engagement, direct interactions and questioning of candidates online, uh, will become permanent and expected for future elections. So will it become a mark of modern candidates versus candidates who rely on traditional power networks for their seat? Or is this just a product of, of the COVID-19 environment? Do you want to go, Anud? And I'll, I'll go after you, Abdullah. Okay. I, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would argue and say yes, because I think with, if the next election happens any sooner before the four years, I think youth engagements would be would have a bigger sort of like presence online. I think we've seen in this election how they sort of like performed and navigated and sort of like diversify sort of the views and opinions during the election. And if 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 the traditional sort of media like the the pre-recorded sort of like uh, interviews or the the live ones, but they are sort of like uh, 
uh, paid and it's more of an advertisement rather than an interview don't adapt to these sort of like what the youth is engaging and what's they're basically bringing to the to the debate and how it's going to be uh, uh, discussed then i think um, uh, the youth are going to have like sort of like a bigger support with time and we've seen this uh, with Raqab, for example, I've seen people who basically snap ca captures like the performance of certain MPs who attended less, who didn't vote on certain agendas or uh, who didn't participate in certain committees and they just show them and share them on Twitter. Uh, some went to the, to, the, to the extent where they would tag the MP or the former MP and say, well, you didn't perform well this in the previous parliament. How am I going to vote for you the next one? And then you would see 50, 80, hundreds of retweets of that one, because people sort of like engage with this thing. If the traditional media don't go to the standards of this, what's, what has, what's been debated on the social media, I think the youth engagement and the sort of like the virtual space would take over um, the, the dialogue basically. Uh, yeah, I, I I kind of agree with Abdullah just in terms of, you know, uh, people in the Gulf, but in Kuwait, especially also, they're, they're very engaged online. And uh, we have a lot more uh, of younger people, you know, the smartphone generation. And, and as Abdullah said, they look for their information from independent platforms. They don't trust traditional media so much. There's this feeling that uh, people uh, pay sometimes to appear on traditional uh, media, but you know I know they they sometimes do that also on new media, uh, but but you know the, the the youth are looking for sort of authenticity and even if it's not reflected sometimes in the in the numbers of followers as Abdullah said the views and the shares that they tell it a very different story and what we've seen in in Mubawi's list is that it seems that nostalgic content appears uh, appeals to to young people a lot they they are interested in in sharing nostalgic content and kind of uh, have this this yearning for a Kuwait that that they've never that they've never seen and never experienced, which is which is very interesting that they're using these new tools, but but uh, you know in, in a kind of uh, introspective like how did we get here uh, or looking for more traditional uh, values or a kind of a golden age, but I I'm pretty sure that that a lot of it is also to do with COVID, uh, and and you know we were debating this uh, in the political leadership and campaign management training we did in, in Iptikar that uh, is, is the fact that everybody is, is online now and engaged in, in lives and Zoom webinars, et cetera. Is this going to, to level the playing field, at least in terms of access to diwanias or access to, to uh, you know, more of the population, et cetera? And, and uh, to, be, to be honest, I'm still not sure what the answer is, because in some ways, yes, certainly it is kind of democratized access for both men and women or, or younger people and, and more established players. But at the same time, we have seen the immense power of, of the Diwaniya and, and especially in, in, in some tribal and some urban places where, where this uh, tradition has not stopped during COVID and, and the, the government hasn't really intervened to make sure that, that, it, that it stopped. And it still wields a lot of power. And it, it still seems to be that a, a physical get together as demonstrated by the newly elected MPs 
is the one that sends a more powerful message. So I, I feel that should the epidemic hopefully leave us soon, we're gonna see people also returning to this type of, of physical space rather than the virtual one. Um, great, and there's a, a lot of questions um, for you, Alanud, actually about, the, uh, about women voting. Um, and if anyone else wants to jump in as well. Um, so do you think that voters were, I guess I, I presume female voters in particular were pressured to vote for men um, or is there kind of something else going on, something else at play? Um, also, what type of gender quota do you believe would best serve uh, women in Kuwait? There's a, another comment basically, I guess in Iraq, the Iraqi model, essentially has new, a new electoral draw, which law, which drew districts to ensure a female quota. So would something like that work? Um, and, and just to really, just to really load up on these, these questions. Another was, was, I mean, do we, do we think that a quote would, or a quota would, would work? Um, or could women kind of more successfully market themselves? I mean, I think a lot of what you, what you mentioned is that women are, are really not able to access spaces uh, that they need to enable to market themselves successfully. So, I mean, I guess, is this a structural issue? Is it a social issue? Is it a little bit of both? Um, what kind of quota would work? Um, yeah, and, and I'll start with Alanud, but then if anyone else wants to, to jump in on, on these questions, feel free. Yeah. So, so I'm gonna insist that everyone here jumps in on these questions because, uh, you know, especially in Malawi's list, we, we couldn't have been as successful as we were in such a short time, at least in getting the message of an alternative narrative through without our male allies. So I'm gonna insist that, that everybody on this panel jump in and, and answer these questions with me. Um, uh, but um, I, the first question that you asked is that, as we said, the, the women are cut from the same fabric as everybody else in the community. Clearly, the numbers show us that it's not just women who are not voting for women. No one is, is voting in, in, in a fair and consistent manner. These women running, they, they, they don't lack qualifications. They work in the NGO sector. They're established. They, they are successful in their careers. They are as earnest uh, at least in, in terms of their agendas, as many of their male colleagues. It's just that there is no cognitive recognition of their roles as political leaders. Uh, even if, if they were involved in, in protest movements or they were involved in, in uh, bringing about positive change, uh, this is still seen as a male space. Uh, and uh, I... I don't know that that this uh, pressure that the question asked about about is is kind of uh, direct pressure that you should vote for uh, this person, which I know happens uh, in in a lot of households, and we've seen that when we were uh, launching this Hajilni campaign and abolish one five three, encouraging uh, young men and women to register to vote. We got a lot of that that there's pressure on them from, from their families uh, to, to not be engaged in the political arena or to be engaged in a certain way. But at the end of the day, everyone in Kuwait votes for their tribe or votes for their sect or votes for uh, a, a, a political representative of an Islamist group uh, or a, a family kinship network, merchant elite, etc. And those uh, uh, organized 
power groups, they, they are not official political parties, but we can consider them de facto ones. None of their leaderships have women in them. None of them promote the candidacy of women. So then are we expecting women to, to vote outside of the, the mainstream political culture? If we're expecting them to do that, then we have to uh, you know, push for that direction. It's, it's not enough uh, to do it on a grassroots level. It, it needs to be met with top-down initiatives. And in that sweet spot between the two, that's where real change is gonna happen. So I will uh, uh, chip in a little bit. I mean, it, it, um, in terms of the, the issue of quotas in particular, which would certainly address the issue, it is, I, I think you're right, it would have to come from the top down because it's hard to see how quotas are gonna be generated by the current political system. Uh, if they were to be put in place, you know, they would have to be done within, <clears throat> or at least it, it, it's hard to change Kuwait's electoral system. So however quotas would be structured, they would need to be structured, at least they would likely be structured within the, the current constraints of the system. One could imagine a couple ways of doing it, maybe to have a couple of reserve seats in each, uh, in each district uh, so that the uh, two women who get the most votes get those two seats or something like that. That would seem to be the least uh, disruptive of the, of the existing system. But I also think that the, the larger point about you know, the fact that the tribes, women do not run in tribal primaries uh, is just absolutely crucial here. That, that, and that's how the system really does discourage female representation. It is because people vote, as you just said, for their, for their tribe or their clan or their sect and the, the candidate, and, and there's a strong incentive to vote for the person who uh, has been agreed upon by the tribe or clan or sect, and that person is uh, not female. Uh, and so it, it, that, that is really the core, I think. It's one, at least in the, in, in the sense of the, the way that the electoral system works, <clears throat> that's a core, a core problem here. I, I, I agree um, with, with Michael. I think one, you know, the one way to, to do it would be, the easiest way to do it would be to have a fixed number of seats within each electoral district. So you have, for example, like five seats in each district are regardless of the vote total, they go uh, towards, uh, towards women who are running. Um, that seems to be the easiest way to, to do it. Um, but I also, you know, I mean, one could imagine a system, for example, the one that was used from 2008 to 2012, where not always, but often candidates would come up with lists of four, you know, a block of four candidates who would run. And this was informal. There was no registration of these lists. There weren't official parties that, you know, whose activities were, were regulated by something like a party's law. But one could imagine a typical, typical type of system where at the sort of, you know, that level, candidates or groups of candidates were required to add, um, to have women on those lists. I'm skeptical. I mean, a lot would need to change for that to happen. We would have to have a, a, effectively a different type of systems. You know, we would have to have something like a political party's law. Um, and, 
you know, that raises other sort of political issues. Kuwaitis in general tend to be very skeptical of organized political parties, um, you know, in the sense of having something like a, a corporate political party. This doesn't mean that Kuwaitis don't, don't vote for certain factions and groups, but those are the sort of options. I also wanna, wanna emphasize that um, in, in sort of talking to some people about this, there's this a strange aversion to quotas in, in this context that I don't quite understand. Um, 80 to 100 countries use quotas. They're incredibly common and popular. The overwhelming you know, academic literature on quotas suggests that they're highly effective, both in increasing the descriptive and substantive, substantive representation of women. There's some evidence of, of you know, backlash and things like this, but it's, it's very minimal and extremely unlikely to appear in a system, well, a system where there are zero women. Um, and so I, I, you know, I often found this very confusing in, in, in hearing people say, well, if quotas are not the way it needs to like come from below. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's not, to me, that's like not really a sensible argument, um, especially given what we know about how comparatively um, quotas are so effective in, in kind of, you know, lessening the amount of inequality in the electoral system and, and the degree of representation of, of underrepresented uh, women and, and, and minorities in, in other cases. So I, I do think that's a point worth emphasizing, um, given the way this conversation often happens in Kuwait, at, at least from, from my experience. Yeah, I've experienced the, the same, this uh, aversion to, to quotas, um, which is strange to me. But anyway, um, Abdullah, I didn't know if you wanted to add anything on this. No, I think I, I generally like agree with what Lanoud uh, has said, that it needs to be me. It has to be from bottom top and like sort of like meet in the middle. Um, but then you always would think like, it's gonna it's gonna backlash. I'm I'm not sure how the process is gonna be, but then changing and putting a quota has to be passed by the by the parliament. So this is where you sort of like go into a deadlock um, the corner. But I think the quota conversation should be discussed and should be highlighted and pushed forward. Uh, we've seen um, uh, and I mentioned this gray area when they pushed for it like supporting candidates uh, on their like sort of like stand on um, on the law to pass the citizenship something like this should push forward for the quota just also to one educate and discuss what's the why the quota is important and how can we enforce it and how can we do it two is also like hold the MPs or the candidates sort of like uh, accountable for their actions once they get elected inside the parliament uh, so uh, this is how, like, sort of, like, I visualize it in a way. Um, thank you, gentlemen, so much. It's nice to have male allies, at least on this platform. Um, if I may just round up this conversation with, with just two comments on the quotas. The first is that I'm, I'm like 
Daniel, I'm surprised when people react as if it's an outlandish suggestion. Well, many established democracies all over the world have healthy quotas, and it's been shown that this is uh, one of the best ways forward when you have entrenched resistance to power sharing, which is clearly what's happening in Kuwait. And when we look at our neighbors, our most immediate neighbors, they they have uh, quotas for, for gender representation well on the way. And when we look at the most established countries in the world, we're seeing them now enforcing gender quotas on their private sector boards because that's not happening organically. So somehow we're expecting this to happen organically in Kuwait under these circumstances. And the second one is, is the idea that uh, quotas would uh, give women an unfair advantage or that they would result in kind of uh, not unqualified people making it. Uh, and uh, the, this argument, I think, looks at uh, leveling the playing field a little bit. I mean, even with quotas, it's not going to level the, the playing field. We, we, we don't see it leveling the playing field immediately anywhere in the world, and I don't think Kuwait will be an exception. But it, it also focuses on kind of an advantage in the process and not the, the, the results. The results are vastly unfair. Uh, in, in terms of representation. So instead of worrying about an advantage in the process, why don't we just look at the, the results that are happening now without intervention? This is going to affect Kuwait's ranking internationally in so many ways. And this is problematic, not just for women, but for everyone in Kuwait. And uh, the, the second is that uh, with quotas, women of merit, women who are qualified are simply given a chance because as we have seen qualified women uh, they get judged very harshly and they are not given a chance and they will not be given a chance so i don't see where the unfair advantage is in introducing quotas and there are many examples around us that that have found solutions it's not like it's impossible to find a solution because of the uniqueness of Kuwait or the uniqueness of our constitution or the uniqueness of our electorate. Many have found solutions to this and they've gotten over it and it's become a normal part of their democracy because I cannot see a, a democracy where there are no female faces in the parliament. I agree. And I think, I mean, also it was just this past year that women in Kuwait uh, are now allowed to be judges. And so there is some movement uh, in terms of uh, having women in what were male dominated spaces, but still in parliament, we're just not seeing it. Um, so another question, I guess, to go back a little bit more to kind of political economy um, topics is, so do you think this parliament will be capable of, adop of adopting some unpopular legislation if necessary? And I, I think that refers probably to things, potentially, there's another question about VAT, um, other kind of austerity measures moving forward, or is this unlikely given, given what we know about the composition of parliament? Um, I know this is something that, that Kuwait uh, gets criticized for quite a lot, is that parliament makes it basically very difficult to, to implement austerity measures. Is there something different about this parliament that might make it a little bit easier um, or more difficult? Um, I don't know who wants to start with that one. Mike, do you want to start? <laughs> I, I, uh, uh, I won't speak on, on specific things, but I don't see anything here that, that suggests that there would be uh, uh, a greater uh, 
you know, that the, the parliament is more likely to impose austerity measures than, than previous ones with the, with the single exception of the fact that, that, that there is a, you know, a, a, there has been a decline in the price of oil, which has been sharper than, than before. So perhaps uh, reality, you know, the, the, the budget crisis will impose itself and maybe that will cause some some change uh, in the attitude of the parliament, but I'm not optimistic about that either. I mean, it's it's uh, uh, Kuwait. Uh, it's just extraordinarily hard for uh, it, it, Kuwait's not unusual in this. Austerity is hard to 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 impose, uh, and there are some things that are specific to Kuwait that make it harder. I mean, there's a lot of distrust of the way that that oil revenues are are allocated and the fairness of the distribution and those concerns uh make it hard to uh uh, uh give the sense that that uh, you know the, the 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 suffering or the burden of cuts are shared amongst uh all groups in in society so i i honestly it i i do think as with a lot of countries, that it will take a real budget crisis. I mean, the, the type of thing that Oman is facing now uh, could produce austerity, uh, but 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 that's a that's a much more difficult economic situation that the Omani state finds itself in than the, than the Kuwaiti state, even though things are difficult in Kuwait. So. Courtney, if I may add something to that, uh, I agree with, the, with Mike, obviously, and I, I say that there's two things we, we need to keep in mind when we're talking about this. First of all, that a lot of the, the MPs that were elected were elected to provide services for their tribe, for their constituents, more jobs, you know, increasing the wage bill, not, not behaving in a way that's fiscally responsible at all, right? Uh, and to, to ensure uh, that this support continues, they're going to have to push for fiscally irresponsible uh, things uh, and, and austerity measures being one of them. The second part of this equation is, as Mike rightly pointed out, Kuwait has been embroiled in corruption scandals over the past uh, few years, and, and people feel like before you, you come after my pocket, uh, what about you know handling all these corruption charges that are that are happening, uh, you know, with with those entrusted with taking care of of uh, you know our government sometimes. So so there's there's this kind of cognitive dissonance between uh, what what the the government needs to do and the crisis of trust that the Kuwaitis in general have around the, the government's handling of funds. Anyone else want to add? I'll, I'll just say this, this isn't my area of expertise, so I won't, I won't say a lot, but I, but I do think a lot of it depends on how the government sort of moves to interact with the parliament and work with the parliament. And we don't yet have a clear sense of what that's going to look like. I mean, the, you know, the government wants to spend in the deficit, the, the recent bill that was proposed um, over, over the summer or, or in September, um, made that pretty clear, but you know it's it's hard to really get a sense of how successful they'll be in in getting the new parliament to adopt this law. I mean, it was, it's it's a pandemic, it's an outgoing parliament, it's election time, so of course the incumbent parliament is going to be you know 
hostile to to those kinds of things. So I think we we just don't know. And and I you know the the most pressing thing I think is you know absent like a real effort to take on some of these corruption and graft uh, scandals. You know the most important are those of which that that directly involve the mismanagement and abuse of public funds. Um, unless the government is sort of takes an interest in, in solving that problem, I think it will be very hard for a lot of um, a, a lot of MPs to sort of seriously consider other kinds of adjustments to to the way you know the, the budget or the state is run. And, and you know, it's it's not clear to me that that's sort of that that's going to happen or that's what's what's coming. Um, but we'll have to wait and see. I think. Um, great, and this is kind of kind of related to your point about we, we're not sure exactly how um, I guess Parliament and the executive are going to kind of interact moving forward, and that will have an impact on on what measures are put forth and are successfully passed. So we have a couple of questions kind of related to government formation. Um, so one is looking ahead to government formation: Will ministerial choices be influenced in any way by the election results? Will they show any indications of likely future ruling family succession dynamics? And then another somewhat related question. Um, and, and I know it's it's difficult um, to know a lot of a lot of these things that happen behind closed doors. Um, how is Amir Nawaf likely to interact with the new parliament? Will he be risk averse, or would he be willing to adopt unpopular policies under certain conditions? So I guess just kind of on the the interaction between um, I guess the Amir and Parliament, and then also the formation of of cabinet. Um, it, you know, kind of I don't know who wants to to start off on that. I think with the I'll start with the, with the relationship between them. The, the new prime minister was just assigned today. I think just by this announcement, by having Sheikh Sabah uh, Khalid, the, the, the new prime minister, uh, shows that, 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 that Sheikh Nawaf and Amir is dealing with the parliament like in a sort of like similar manner where the, it used to be at the beginning of the year. So I don't think there would be a much change. And the government for the past three government formations, because we had, <clears throat> in, the, in the former parliament, we had three governments uh, and two resignations. So uh, the, the sort of like the selection process has been sort of like there's a pattern to it. It's very sort of like responsive to the, to the parliament. And it's sort of like they're trying to avoid as much confrontation with the parliament as possible. So we've seen um, the, the, how, for example, they've, uh, the, they've had Al-Jabri on the, on, the, uh, on the cabinet for the four years. He was an elected MP and then he was part of the, uh, the government for four years. And then towards the end of the year, toward the end of the last term, they've added another elected MP to the sort of like selection. Uh, my, my, my projection on this is like, it's gonna go through the same lines. And uh, and I'm just curious to see how would um, who would be part of the who would be from the elected sort of like MPs who would be part of the new government, and that shows you how sort of like the government is trying to sort of like take the heat off the parliament. So, uh, but then as you said in the beginning, this selections happens behind closed doors, so it's very hard sort of like to see. But uh, it's more of the same. Does anyone want to add anything else? Um, 
All right, so maybe some some continuity in, in 2020 for, for once, um, but uh, still you never, never really know. I mean, this is one question that's come up and I, it's uh, not directly related to the elections, I suppose, but something that, that's been in the news the past few days about um, the Gulf crisis and potential resolution. Kuwait, of course, was at the center of mediating that uh, these past three years. And this one question is, you know, and I, I don't believe that it was highlighted in any election campaigns, but this question is kind of, was it highlighted in events which took place before the election? Do we see any kind of, uh, I, as, I, as I say, it is kind of an unfair question because it's not really to do with elections, my own question. Kind of, do, do, we, do we see any movement uh, here with, towards a resolution? Because there, there is some kind of somewhat confusing messaging coming out of uh, Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to take that on. I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll start off and, and just say, um, I, I generally think that regional issues are not sort of high on, on voters kind of radar in elections, but, but I do think a, a, a lot of Kuwaitis follow these issues super closely and are very invested in what's going on in the region. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I don't know necessarily how regional issues were sort of discussed in the election. My sense is that they probably weren't. But I do want to say, and I think it's worth noting that candidates, and, and I'll say this carefully, candidates who have something of a history or a reputation for uh, using sectarian, more sectarian rhetoric in elections did not do as well as they have in the past. Um, and so is that a product of, you know, Kuwaitis uh, kind of, Kuwaitis being frustrated with the kind of sectarianization of the regional conversation? Maybe, I don't, I don't know. But I do think it's interesting that those candidates and there, there are several did particularly poorly in the districts in which they ran. And I, I think, you know, despite the fact that, you know, the system still, you know, is very, uh, there are tribal primaries and sect and kin and clan-based ties are important. I do think that the use of those appeals and their abuse in the past, um, the fact that they seem to not work as, as well as maybe they sometimes do is um, at, at least to me a kind of, something of a bellwether for what Kuwaitis are expecting of, of their regional politics um, and, and what they sort of, the kind of future they imagine for, for the region. And I don't know if others agree or, or disagree, um, but that was watching this election from afar and analyzing the results. That was, that was my reaction to that. Anyone else want to add? Um, well, I guess, yeah, I guess we'll see. We'll see what happens. And I know that we're running out of time. Um, so I guess I just wanted to, I mean, before closing, maybe go around and have all of you um, talk. There's one question about kind of what you see as the, the main topics and agendas that'll come up in this parliament. So I don't know, um, just briefly kind of talking a bit about that. Um, and then if there's anything else you, you wanted to add about this election, about anything else going on in Kuwait, um, and then we can go ahead and, and close. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, start, I'll start with Mike this time. <laughs> That's all right. Um, I think that, I mean, there's, again, there's a lot of continuity going on here. Uh, and so I think a lot of the issues are going to be issues that have been around for, for a while and that Kuwait wrestles with. Uh, the issue of corruption, 
uh, is something which, uh, you know, and people mean different things by that, uh, but, but there's a lot of, uh, you know, that is something that, that people will pay attention to, the issue of uh, the, uh, the sort of uh, uh, nationalism that you see in Kuwait, which is oriented towards, uh, you know, fixing the, uh, the, uh, the uh, you know, demographic imbalance. Uh, which has been something which has been talked about a lot in recent years and which we didn't actually talk about much here, but, but um, there's a, you know, that was discussed in, in the election campaigns and certainly that's going to be an issue uh, going forward. Uh, and then the, the, you know, the perennial again, the, the people in the, the campaigns complained about uh, the electoral system. Don't know if there's much prospect of changing it, but there is a lot of talk about that. And you know, political freedoms, this idea of, uh, of uh, some sort of amnesty or something like this. So I think, but you know, again, I, 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 I uh, I'm not sure I saw something brand new show up in this uh, uh, election, but perhaps others might have uh, seen something that, that, that I missed as well. So um, go to Abdallah now. Uh... I think the parliament already inherited many challenges from the previous parliament. And uh, there is sort of like a carryover from the last parliament to this parliament, namely like the, 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 the stateless uh, law, the, the ones that um, Merzouk tried to push uh, the, so hard towards the end of the parliament to pass, but it didn't. I think we're gonna have um, the, we're gonna have it this time again. And there is also sort of like a pushback during the elections, where, where candidates were like uh, verbally and uh, openly saying that they're with or against uh, the Merzouk's uh, the bill for the stateless. And um, this is that we're gonna see throughout the next year. And um, the fiscal budgeting and uh, the freedom of expressions and, by, and, and things related to the cyber crime law, because it has been uh, increasingly, especially during um, uh, COVID and during the, we've seen Abid Wasmi and um, Hassan Johar has been sort of like, um, uh, uh, they've been sort of like subjected to the cyber crime law because they criticized the government spending during the COVID. Uh, and um, the, this is something that I think is gonna be discussed within the next parliament. And uh, things related to the amnesty or what um, the, the, polit uh, the political vigors in, in, in exile, and this is something that has been also the talk of the elections in 2016, but they tried uh, two times to pass this amnesty law, but it didn't go. So I'm not sure how this parliament is going to handle it with sort of like within in a new way and a new sort of like uh, land sort of like deal with these. But um, the, these are sort of like the, the top things that just come to my head now. Great, uh, Dan. I think um, Abdullah and Michael gave a nice sort of summary of the, the topics and issues that are, are likely to come up. I think, um, you know, I'll, and also just say a few things about the electoral law. Um, I think that, you know, every new emir brings a distinct kind of personality or style or approach to negotiating with the parliament. And in the past with that has come a new electoral law. Um, we saw this in, in, in 2006. Um, and 
my sense is that if you know everyone kind of understands or acknowledges, even if they don't do anything about it or care, that this electoral law is not really working for anyone. Um, and I think you know it, even the government. I think there are there are people in the government ele elements of the government that um, again, even if they don't do anything about it, do acknowledge it. And so my sense is that if the government prioritizes this or makes a decision that it, it wants to have some sort of, of change, then it kind of you know raises the possibility that that this could happen. Um, I don't think we're we're there yet. Um, I think what we have seen from Sheikh Nawaf so far is that he is pretty uh, generally risk averse and, and prone to continuity, and that would suggest that a new law or proposal is not in the offing. But there were rumors of, of, of a law in the past. There were a couple MPs in the last parliament who, who sort of at the 11th hour tried to get this on the agenda and were, were not allowed to. And so that's something I think that um, you know, could gain a little bit more attention. And even though there's not likely to be you know, change or continuity, one of the lessons, I mean, when you go back and read the sort of when you read the readouts of what happened in 2016, a lot of articles were like, oh, wow, you know, there, there are 25 opposition people in parliament, you know, there are so many. And, you know, that, that didn't materialize. And it didn't materialize because a lot of the new faces just really didn't do a lot to push the government in any sort of organized, coherent, or, or systematic way. And so there might be a recognition among some MPs that like that's the sort of individual interaction with the government um, is just not going to fly, is not going to allow them to be reelected, is not going to be popular if it doesn't kind of credibly lead to something different. And so the electoral law, you know, and there are other issues, maybe one area where there could be some sort of discussion or, or change, um, you know, and, and again, I'm skeptical that that's something the government wants or will allow, but you know, that's one thing that, that could be on the agenda. And, and there's some indication that, you know, folks are, are, are open to that. Great, and Alanud? Uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to find uh, something to comment on with everything that's been covered by my colleagues, but like them, I think that the amnesty law and, and uh, kind of the economic issues are gonna dominate. Uh, but in Kuwait, you know, the personal is the political, so it, it also falls down to these essentially independent uh, MPs to, uh, to, to decide what their own priorities are going to be. And, and you know, if they're going to go back to the kind of interpolation, political, uh, political uh, uh, shortcut. Uh, so, so that's going to set an agenda of its own. I'm, I'm interested and I'm curious to see uh, the last time we had such an overtly uh, tribal Islamist majority, we got some some pretty uh, 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 some pretty let's say uh, uh, right wing uh, suggestions. You know, the blasphemy law and moderate dress for women, etc. I I wonder if we're going to see some of these idea being floated uh, again. Uh, or if we're going to move on to, to new conversation topics.